We turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Last Sunday we read the first part of this chapter in connection with the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. So I thought let's read the rest of the chapter since it also fits with Lord's Day 23. We'll start reading at verse 10 and read to the end of the chapter. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then were all dead, and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We read the word of God that far. I call your attention this morning to Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Where we find these questions and answers. But what doth it profit thee now that thou believest all this? that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding, God without any merit of mine but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, 
even so as if I never had had nor committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Why sayest thou that thou art righteous by faith only? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, what does it profit you that you believe all things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us? What does it profit you that you believe all the things revealed in the Holy Scriptures concerning God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our redemption? And God the Spirit in our sanctification, as we have heard those doctrines preached approximately the last five months here from this pulpit, the articles of the Apostles' Creed. What does it profit you that you believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? That's the question. The Catechism puts to us this morning. It asks us about the profit of believing. And Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that faith in God and in His Son Jesus Christ is not something worthless that we can do with or without. Faith in God and in His Son is certainly not something that is harmful for us as one person said to me once, because it inhibits the progress of the human race. But the Heidelberg Catechism teaches rather that faith in God and his son Jesus Christ is highly profitable, and that without faith, one will perish. The scriptures teach us elsewhere that the word that was preached to the Israelites in the wilderness did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith. And we read elsewhere in the book of Galatians that to those who heard the word but trusted in their own works and in their own obedience, Christ shall profit you nothing. Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. But the word of the gospel that is preached to us is highly profitable to us who believe it, to us who believe in the Christ who is preached in that gospel, to us who hear the gospel and receive the gospel and believe in the Christ of that gospel, we receive the greatest treasure imaginable, 
And that treasure, that prophet, is the righteousness of God in Christ and the gift of everlasting life. So I call your attention to the prophet of believing in Christ. First of all, that we are righteous before God. Secondly, righteous in Christ. And thirdly, righteous by faith. The prophet of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the Catechism, is that I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. The prophet of believing in Christ is that I am fully and freely justified before God now and forever. So the Lord's Day is teaching us the truth and the gospel of justification. Justification is the act of God whereby he grants and imputes to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ so that God does not reckon to my account my sins and he does not reckon me guilty before his bar of justice, but he reckons to me that I am righteous in Christ. Now, we all know that the fact of the matter is that we have sinned against God and our neighbor many, many times and in many, many ways. How long of a list could we make of all of the sins that we have committed against God and our neighbor if we would just sit down for a moment, take a pen in hand and a pad of paper, and search our memories for just the sins that we can remember committing in our lives. If we would try to think back to the sins that we committed, for example, in that rebellious stage of our childhood, or in a wild phase of our youth, or in an earlier stage of our marriage when we were particularly selfish and unloving, or even just last week when we had a blow-up at work toward some co-worker or because of some frustrating thing that happened we could make a very long list of just the sins that we can remember. How many times has our conscience accused us in our lives that we have grossly transgressed the commandments of God? How many times has our conscience pricked us and accused us and pointed its long finger at us and said, you are a gross sinner. You have grossly transgressed the law of God You did it with full knowledge. You did it intentionally. You did it carelessly. You didn't care about the law of God. And knowingly, you chose and decided to perform that wicked deed, didn't you? If we would sit down for a moment and do a little honest reckoning with ourselves, we would find that our conscience would stand up like a prosecuting attorney in the court of law us sitting in the seat of the accused. And our conscience would pace back and forth before us and point at us again and again and again and say, you're a sinner, you're guilty. You've transgressed all of the commandments of God, every single one of them. You've kept none of the commandments of God, not even one of them. And you are still inclined to all evil, aren't you? Aren't you? 
Even now, when you claim to be a new creature in Christ, when you say that old things have passed away and all things have become new in your life, that you have matured in your life, that you have grown up in your life, that you have put aside certain sinful activities of your childhood and your youth, even now, you're still inclined to all evil, aren't you? That's what our conscience will say to us. You still have a desire to do those old, filthy, rotten, wicked things, don't you? You still covet your neighbor's house and your neighbor's wife. You're still filled with jealousy and envy. And you still act on many of those impulses too, don't you? You still fall into some of those sins. In fact, you fall into them time and time again, don't you? So our conscience, pacing before us, pointing out to us the facts of our lives, shows us that we have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God. We are sinners. We are guilty. So that we shrink before the judgment seat of God. We hide our faces before the supreme judge of heaven and earth. And we cry out to him, O Lord, have mercy upon me. Do not, do not hold me to the standard of thy law. Because no man can be justified before thy holy law. O Lord, if thou would mark my transgressions, O Lord, who could stand? Those are the facts of the matter. But the Catechism teaches us that to those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we receive this great treasure and this great profit that God, the supreme judge of heaven and earth, the judge of the whole universe grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. First of all, he grants to me and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction of his justice. God reckons to my account and he declares to me there in the court of law, that I have satisfied his justice fully and completely, that all of the demands of his eternal and perfect justice have been met in regard to me, that I have no outstanding debts in that court of law. He grants to me in the second place perfect righteousness, the righteousness of his law. He imputes to me, he reckons to my account righteousness, so that he declares to me, I find this man to be standing in perfect harmony with my law, perfect conformity to all of my commandments. I don't see on his record even one single violation of a single one of my commandments. And in the third place, God grants and imputes to me that perfect holiness of body and soul without which no man shall see the Lord. He grants and imputes to me holiness of body so that he looks down upon me and says, I reckon to this man and I declare about this man that in his body, in all of his actions in his body, in all that he has done in and with and through his body, he is holy. He is pure and he is clean. In his soul, he is holy. 
As regards his soul, I see that he is clean and pure. There is not a single blot or a single blemish on his soul. It's as if I have never seen a single bad desire or thought, but he is holy and entirely consecrated to God. That's what God grants and imputes to me, and that's what God declares about me in his court of law. Mind you, that's what God declares about me and you who know full well that that's not true of us in ourselves. He says that about you and me who know full well that I have a a growing pile of debt before the judgment of God. That every time I sin, I add another debt and another debt so that I build up this massive pile of debts. He says that about us who know full well that we are not righteous before that holy law of God, that we do not stand in harmony with that law, that we break that law, we violate it every single day. He says that about us who know very well how filthy and disgusting we are in our bodies and in our souls. The filthy and disgusting things we've done in our bodies. The things we've desired and thought in our souls. We know full well that we return to the cesspool of sin and iniquity like a dog to its vomit. And yet, God grants and imputes to us perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness and declares about us righteous, holy. Mind you too, beloved, God does not make this judgment and declaration because he has infused into our souls the grace to live a righteous life so that now, by the grace of God, we walk in righteousness Not that. Not that God gives us the Holy Spirit so that we are able now, although we were not able before, we're able now to live righteously so that God looks at us and sees, although they did a lot of sins in the past and they still do a lot of sins now, yet they also do a lot of righteousness. And therefore, I consider them righteous. Not that. That's the doctrine of justification taught by the Roman Catholic Church. That God infuses the grace to live righteously into our lives so that although we have sins, we also have righteousness. We do. We have a personal righteousness that we can offer to God and that he accepts so that he declares us righteous because of what he sees in us. No, but God judges and declares us to be righteous because he has imputed to our account a righteousness that is not our own. He has reckoned to our name a righteousness that we did not perform, that we will never perform, and that we can never perform. It's because he imputes to us an alien righteousness, a righteousness which comes from somewhere else, from someone else, from some other place. It doesn't originate in us. It's a righteousness that originates 
in God. And He takes that righteousness and imputes it to us. That means He credits it to our account. He reckons it to our name. He considers that it is ours even though we didn't do it. That's justification. And that's the profit and the blessing of believing. The profit of believing in Jesus Christ is great indeed. The profit is that when God looks upon me, he looks upon me as if, just as if, I never had had nor committed any sin. Not even a single sin. But he looks upon me and considers me just as if I had accomplished all that obedience of the law that I know I did not. That's justification. You can remember justification this way. It is just as if I never sinned. And it is just as if I performed the righteousness that I didn't. Justification. That's the profit of believing. That I am righteous before God. Righteous before the supreme judge of the supreme court that has the jurisdiction of the whole universe. That's the profit of believing. And that therefore, I am an heir of eternal life. You know, if I have only one mark against me in that supreme court of God, only one mark against me, then I cannot be an heir of eternal life. I can only be an heir of eternal death. I must be punished and condemned to the everlasting torment of hell. I must have a perfect, pure, spotless record in the judgment hall of God. And that is the blessing of justification. Because I have a perfect, spotless record. Therefore, God says, you are worthy of eternal life. Eternal life with me. Eternal life in the glorious world that I am still going to create so that I will bring you there to live with me forever and ever. How can this be? That's the great question that you should be left with after the first point of the sermon. How can this be that God reckons me righteous? That God grants to me perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness so that it's just as if I never sinned and it's just as if I am righteous in myself. We know that God cannot just forgive our sins. God cannot just cancel our sins. If there is no reckoning for those sins, God cannot just wipe our slate clean without any condemnation or punishment. We know that God cannot just reckon us righteous if there is no real righteousness. We talk about this alien righteousness that comes from somewhere. Well, that better be a real righteousness because God won't accept anything less. God is indeed supremely merciful and gracious. And some people cling to that mercy and the grace and the love of God. And they say, that's how I know that God saves me because he's gracious and merciful. He just blots out my iniquities. He can do that. 
He can't do that unless there is a real reckoning and a real punishment because God is also supremely just and righteous and holy. God cannot deny himself. God cannot go against himself. Therefore, being merciful and gracious, holy and just, there must be, there must be a real satisfaction and a real righteousness. And the message of the gospel is that there is. There has been a real reckoning And there is a real righteousness in Christ. The Catechism emphasizes to us the message of the gospel when it points us to Christ. The profit of believing is that I am righteous in Christ. God grants and imputes to me the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ so that it is just as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. Only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. There is a real reckoning. There is a real righteousness. It's the righteousness of God in Christ. The Apostle Paul speaks of that in the chapter that we read. He writes in verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constrains every true and faithful minister of the gospel who has been called and sent by Christ to preach, who has been made an ambassador for Christ, who has been given the word of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. That minister is consumed by and constrained by the love of Christ, to share that love of Christ, to preach that love of Christ, to preach the everlasting love of God Almighty. For the whole world of his elect people in Christ, which love God has manifested in the gift of his Son into this world and through his Son, in the reconciliation of the world, to himself. God was in Christ, Paul writes, reconciling the world unto himself, verse 19. God was in Christ. God himself must bring us righteousness. So God came into the world, into human nature, into Christ. And God in Christ was reconciling the world unto himself. And now notice the language of justification. Verse 19, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Justification means God does not impute our trespasses to us. He does not hold our sins against us. Why not? because he has already imputed them to Christ. He has taken all of our sins and trespasses and imputed them to Christ. He holds them against Christ. He holds Christ responsible for the sins which you and I have committed. We see that in the last verse of the chapter where he says, For he hath made him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin. 
Christ knew no sin. God made certain to demonstrate to the whole world in the life of Jesus that he knew no sin. Tempted by the devil in the wilderness, he resisted all of those temptations. And throughout his life, he resisted every temptation. And as he came before the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate, again and again and again, the worldly judge declared, I find no fault in him. He is innocent. He is sinless. He is a lamb without spot and without blemish, pure, righteous, and holy in himself. But God also made clear to the world that although Christ was personally pure, sinless, righteous, yet he had become sin for us who knew no sin. Although he knew no sin, because he had never experienced sin, he didn't know what it was like to sin, yet he became sin because God took the sin of the whole world, of his people, and laid it upon him, imputed it to him, so that God saw our sins in Christ. God imputed our sins to Christ so that there would be a true and real reckoning for every single one of them. And that's what happened at the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself at the cross because having imputed our sins to him, God must declare him guilty and declaring him guilty and condemned, God must pour out upon him that wrath and judgment and death that we deserve. That's the meaning of the cross. That God was pouring out upon him the just desert, the just punishment of all our sins. And that's why God grants and imputes to us perfect satisfaction. We say, how can it be when I rack up this debt every day, how can it be that God looks upon me and says, and sees that I am in perfect harmony with his justice, that I have no outstanding debts, because he imputes to me the perfect satisfaction of Christ, so that it's just as if I was hanging on that cross, it's just as if I was receiving the waves and billows of God's wrath, it's just as if I suffered already the everlasting punishment of death, because Christ did it for me. God sees me only in Christ. And therefore, when he sees me, he sees that it's just as if I never had had nor committed a single sin. In the second place, the love of Christ that constrains the minister of the gospel to preach is the love that Christ himself had for God and his neighbor. Remember that there also must be a real righteousness, an an alien righteousness, but it must be real. The love of Christ was the love that Christ had for God throughout his life and for his neighbor. Christ personally kept all of the commandments of God 
He loved the Lord his God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, and with all of his strength. And he loved his neighbor as himself, even when God was pouring out his wrath on him on the cross. Even then in the midst of the darkness, when all he felt was the wrath and the forsaking of God, even then he loved God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. And even there on the cross, having been despised and rejected of men, he loved his neighbor as himself. Remember what he said about the soldiers? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Not, Father, destroy them. Father, forgive them. He loved his enemies. He loved his persecutors. He loved the very men who nailed him to the cross. And by his perfect love and perfect obedience, he earned for us a perfect righteousness and holiness and body and soul. And so there's a real righteousness that God grants and imputes to me for the sake of Christ. That's why, for Christ's sake, that God looks upon me and he sees that it's just as if I fully accomplished all that obedience that God required when I didn't. There has been a real reckoning for all my sins and there is a real righteousness in Christ. And God gives to me and to many others the ministry of reconciliation. He gives to us the office of preaching the gospel, the office of standing before men in the church and outside the church and saying what Paul said to the Corinthians in verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. And you say, how? How can I be reconciled to God? How can I be righteous and justified before God? And I tell you the answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And thou shalt be saved. Be very clear that a man is not justified by the works of the law. A man is not and cannot be justified by his own personal obedience, by her own keeping of the laws of Moses, by his or her own love, goodness, by his or her own good works. The child of God confesses in Lord's Day 23 that God grants and imputes to me that righteousness without any merit of mine. When the Catechism inserts that word merit there, it is teaching us that our confession, if we are believers, is that I am righteous, but I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything, and I couldn't do anything 
to earn it, to merit it, to become worthy of it. It's without any merit of mine. There's absolutely nothing that I did or that I could do to make myself worthy of that righteousness. It is only of mere grace. As the scriptures say repeatedly, we are justified freely by his grace. If it is by works, then it is not by grace. But if it is by grace, then it is not by works. It's one or the other. And the gospel says, we are righteous in Christ, only of mere grace. And the reason that it must be only of mere grace is so that there will be no boasting coming out of our hearts. Romans 3 concludes that chapter by saying, where is boasting then? It is excluded. Where is boasting? By grace are you saved, through faith, and not not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let us never boast of our righteousness. God can raise up children of Abraham out of the stones. But how? How am I righteous before God? How is God pleased graciously to grant and impute to me this perfect righteousness? The Catechism answers, and you answer, I am justified by faith. By faith alone. By grace, through faith. Through faith means it's through grace. It's through faith, not works. It's through faith, because it is a free gift. But what do you mean when you say that you are justified by faith only? You do not mean to say, well, I know I'm not acceptable before God on account of my works, but I believe I'm acceptable to God on account of my faith. Not that. The Catechism puts that into the mouth of the child of God as well. Not that I am acceptable before God on account of the worthiness of my faith. Not because... Unlike unbelievers, there was something in me that was better than them so that I was led to faith, but they weren't. Because faith is a gift of God to his elect. Faith comes from God as well. The righteousness comes from God through Christ, but the faith also comes from God through Christ through the Spirit who works it in us. There's nothing about faith that makes us acceptable to God. God demands obedience, perfect obedience. Faith is not enough. Even if we could come up with faith, it wouldn't be enough. God can't accept us righteously and justly just because we have faith. No. But what we mean when we say we are justified by faith alone is that faith and faith alone is what connects me to Christ. Faith is the means that God uses to bring me into the union with Christ so that I embrace him, so that I trust in Christ 
and rest in Christ and not in myself. Faith is, in its very essence, the repudiation of myself, the repudiation of my works, the repudiation of anything that I am or could be or could do. Faith says, I'm lost, O Lord, I'm lost. Help me, save me. Reach down into this world and give me the righteousness of Christ. That's faith. It's the desperate dependence upon God through Christ for my righteousness. Catechism puts it that way when it says at the end of answer 60, inasmuch as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. Embracing something means that you grip it, you lay hold upon it, because it's so precious to you and you know that you need it so badly. You embrace it. That's faith. It's the embracing of Christ as my only hope for righteousness before a a pure and holy God. And the Catechism says that's the only way. That's the only way that I can receive from Christ and apply to myself that righteousness which I didn't perform. That's justification. Therefore, beloved, when you hear that ministry of reconciliation, when you hear that word of Christ preached, and when you hear that call to believe in him, then embrace him with a sincere heart. No mere outward show of faith, but a true and living and sincere faith of the heart. That's the faith that God gives to us. That's the faith that connects us to Christ. That's the faith by which a man can be justified, and that alone. So look to Christ again this morning. You who have looked to Christ up till this point in your life, look to him again. Lay your eyes upon Jesus again. Not just as some wonderful teacher, not just as some great example, but as the one who died for you as your righteousness before God for time and eternity. Amen. Our gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, all thanks and praise be unto thee that thou hast done great things for us, that thou hast shown thy love by sending Christ And that thou in Christ hast reconciled the world to thyself, not imputing our trespasses to us. We thank thee, Lord, that thou hast made Christ to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. May that glorious message of salvation comfort us today. May it give us joy and peace and hope. 